0: Section 3 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 1. Part 3. The next evening found him back again at his place at the Red Line, moderate and decent. There he sat and stubbornly waited for what would happen next. Did he or did he not believe that he belonged to this world of Cossethay and Elkston? There was nothing in it he wanted. Yet could he ever get out of it? Was there anything in himself that would carry him out of it? Or was he a dunder-headed baby, not man enough to be like the other young fellows who drank a good deal and wrenched a little without any question and were satisfied? He went on stubbornly for a time. Then the strain became too great for him. A hot, accumulated consciousness was always awake in his chest. His wrists felt swelled and quivering. His mind became full of lustful images. His eyes seemed blood-flushed. He fought with himself furiously to remain normal. He did not seek any woman. He went on as if he were normal. Till he must either take some action or beat his head against the wall. Then he went deliberately to Oakston in silence intent and beaten. He drank to get drunk. He gulped down the brandy, and more brandy, till his face became pale, his eyes burning. And still he could not get free. He went to sleep in drunken unconsciousness, woke up at four o'clock in the morning and continued drinking. He would get free. Gradually the tension in him began to relax. He began to feel happy. His riveted silence was unfastened. He began to talk and babble. He was happy and at one with all the world. He was united with all flesh in a hot blood relationship. So after three days of incessant brandy drinking, he had burned out the youth from his blood. He had achieved this kindled state of oneness with all the world, which is the end of youth's most passionate desire. But he had achieved his satisfaction by obliterating his own individuality, that which it depended on his manhood to preserve and develop. So he became a bout drinker, having at intervals these bouts of three or four days of brandy drinking, when he was drunk for the whole time. He did not think about it. A deep resentment burned in him. He kept aloof from any women, antagonistic. When he was twenty-eight, a thick-limbed, stiff, fair man with fresh complexion and blue eyes staring very straight ahead, he was coming one day down from Cossethay with a load of seed out of Nottingham. It was a time when he was getting ready for another bout of drinking, so he stared fixedly before him, watchful yet absorbed, seeking everything and aware of nothing, coiled in himself. It was early in the year. He walked steadily beside the horse. The load clanked behind as the hill descended deeper. The road curved downhill before him, under banks and hedges, seen only for a few yards ahead. Slowly turning the curve at the steepest part of the slope, his horse britching between the shafts, he saw a woman approaching. But he was thinking for the moment of the horse. Then he turned to look at her. She was dressed in black, and apparently rather small and slight, beneath her long black cloak, and she wore a black bonnet. She walked hastily, as if unseeing, her head rather forward. It was her curious, absorbed, flitting motion as if she were passing unseen by everybody that first arrested him. She had heard the cart and looked up. Her face was pale and clear. She had thick, dark eyebrows and a wide mouth, curiously held. He saw her face clearly, as if by a light in the air. He saw her face so distinctly that he ceased to coil on himself and was suspended. That's her, he said involuntarily. As the cart passed by, splashing through the thin mud, she stood back against the bank. Then, as he walked still beside his britching horse, his eyes met hers. He looked quickly away, pressing back his head, a pain of joy running through him. He could not bear to think of anything. He turned round at the last moment. He saw her bonnet, her shape in the black cloak, the movement as she walked. Then she was gone round the bend. She had passed by. He felt as if he were walking again in a far world, not Kasathe, a far world, the fragile reality. He went on, quiet, suspended, rarefied. He could not bear to think or to speak, nor make any sound or sign, nor change his fixed motion. He could scarcely bear to think of her face. He moved within the knowledge of her in the world that was beyond reality. The feeling that they had exchanged recognition possessed him like a madness, like a torment. How could he be sure? What confirmation had he? The doubt was like a sense of infinite space, a nothingness, annihilating. He kept within his breast the will to surety. They had exchanged recognition. He walked about in this state for the next few days, And then again, like a mist, it began to break to let through the common, barren world. He was very gentle with man and beast, but he dreaded the starkness and dissolution cropping through again. As he was standing with his back to the fire after dinner a few days later, he saw the woman passing. He wanted to know that she knew him, that she was aware. He wanted it said that there was something between them. So he stood, anxiously watching looking at her as she went down the road. He called to Tilly. "'Who might that be?' he asked. Tilly, the cross-eyed woman of forty, who adored him, ran gladly to the window to look. She was glad when he asked her for anything. She craned her head over the short curtain, the little tight knob of her black hair sticking out pathetically as she bobbed about. "'Oh, why?' she lifted her head and peered with her twisted, keen brown eyes. Why, you know who it is. It's her from the vicarage, you know. How do I know you, henbird? He shouted. Tilly blushed and drew her neck in and looked at him with her squinting, sharp, almost reproachful look. Why, you do. It, it's the new housekeeper. I, And what by that? Well, and what by that? Rejoined the indignant Tilly. She's a woman, isn't she? "'Housekeeper or no housekeeper? "'She's got more to her than that. "'Who is she? "'She's got a name.' "'Well, if she has, I don't know,' retorted Tilly, "'not to be badgered by this lad who had grown up into a man. "'What's her name?' he asked more gently. "'I'm sure I couldn't tell you,' replied Tilly, on her dignity. "'And is that all you've gathered?' As she's a housekeeping at the vicarage? I've heard mention of her name, but I couldn't remember it for my life. Why, you riddle-skulled woman of nonsense, what have you got a head for? For what other folks has got theirs for, retorted Tilly, who loved nothing more than these tilts when he would call her names. There was a lull. I don't believe as anybody could keep it in their head, the woman servant continued tentatively. "'What?' he asked. "'Why, her name.' "'How's that?' "'She's for some foreign parts or other.' "'Who told you that?' "'That's all I do know, as she is.' "'And where do you reckon she's from, then?' "'I don't know. "'They do say as she hails from the Pole.' "'I don't know,' Tilly he hastened to add, "'knowing he would attack her.' "'Fra the Pole.' Why do you hail fra the Pole, who set up that menagerie confabulation? That's what they say. I don't know. Who says? Mrs. Bentley says she's fra the Pole, else she is a Pole, or summit. Tilly was only afraid she was landing herself in deeper now. Who says she's a Pole? They all say so. Then what's brought her to these parts? I couldn't tell you. She's got a little girl with her. Got a little girl with her? Of three or four, with a head like a fuzzball. Black? White, fair as can be, and all of a fuzz. Is there a father, then? Not to my knowledge, I don't know. What brought her here? I couldn't say, without the vicar, Axter. Is the child her child? I should think so. They say so. Who told you about her? Why, Lizzie, a Monday. We see her going past. You'd have to be rattling your tongues if anything went past. Brangwen stood musing. That evening he went up to Cossethay to the Red Lion, half with the intention of hearing more. She was the widow of a Polish doctor, he gathered. Her husband had died, a refugee in London. She spoke a bit foreign-like, but you could easily make out what she said. She had one little girl named Anna. Lenski was the woman's name. Anna was the woman's name. Mrs. Lenski. Brongwyn felt that here was the unreality established at last. He felt also a curious certainty about her, as if she were destined to him. It was to him a profound satisfaction that she was a foreigner. A swift change had taken place on the earth for him as if a new creation were fulfilled in which he had real existence. Things had all been stark, unreal, barren, mere nullities before. Now they were actualities that he could handle. He dared scarcely think of the woman. He was afraid. Only all the time he was aware of her presence not far off. He lived in her, but he dared not know her, even acquaint himself with her by thinking of her. One day, he met her walking along the road with her little girl. It was a child with a face like a bud of an apple blossom, and glistening fair hair like thistle down sticking out in straight, wild, flamey pieces, and very dark eyes. The child clung jealously to her mother's side when he looked at her, staring with resentful black eyes. But the mother glanced at him again, almost vacantly. And the very vacancy of her look inflamed him. She had wide, gray-brown eyes with very dark, fathomless pupils. He felt the fine flame running under his skin, as if all his veins had caught fire on the surface. And he went on walking without knowledge. It was coming, he knew, his fate. The world was submitting to its transformation. He made no move. It would come. What would come? When his sister Effie came to the marsh for a week, he went with her for once to church. In the tiny place, with its mere dozen pews, he sat not far from the stranger. There was a fineness about her, a poignancy about the way she sat and held her head lifted. She was strange, from far off, yet so intimate. She was from far away, a presence so close to his soul. She was not really there sitting in Cassathay church beside her little girl. She was not living the apparent life of her days. She belonged to somewhere else. He felt it poignantly as something real and natural. But a pang of fear for his own concrete life, that was only Cassathay hurt him, and give him misgiving. Her thick, dark brows almost met above her regular nose. She had a wide, rather thick mouth. But her face was lifted to another world of life, not to heaven or death, but to some place where she still lived, in spite of her body's absence. The child beside her watched everything with wide, black eyes. She had an odd, little defiant look. Her little red mouth was pinched shut. She seemed to be jealously guarding something, to be always on the alert for defense. She met Bronwyn's near-vacant, intimate gaze, and a palpitating hostility, almost like a flame of pain, came into the wide, overconscious, dark eyes. The old clergyman droned on. Kossathay sat unmoved as usual. And there was the foreign woman with a foreign air about her, inviolate, and the strange child, also foreign, jealously guarding something. When the service was over, he walked in the way of another existence out of the church, As he went down the church path with his sister, behind the woman and child, the little girl suddenly broke from her mother's hand and slipped back with quick, almost invisible movement, and was picking at something almost under Brangwen's feet. Her tiny fingers were fine and quick, but they missed the red button. Have you found something? said Brangwen to her. And he also stooped for the button but she had got it and she stood back with it pressed against her little coat her black eyes flaring at him as if to forbid him to notice her then having silenced him she turned with a swift mother and was gone down the path the mother had stood watching impassive looking not at the child but at Bronwyn he became aware of the woman looking at him standing there isolated yet for him dominant in her foreign existence he did not know what to do and turned to his sister but the wide gray eyes, almost vacant yet so moving, held him beyond himself. Mother, I may have, may not I? came the child's proud silvery tones. Mother, she seemed always to be calling herself mother to remember her. Mother, and she had nothing to continue now her mother had replied, Yes, my child. But with ready invention the child stumbled and ran on. What are those people's names? Brongwen heard the abstract. I don't know, dear. He went on down the road as if he were not living inside himself, but somewhere outside. Who was that person? His sister Effie asked. I couldn't tell you, he answered, unknowing. She's somebody very funny, said Effie, almost in condemnation. That child's like one bewitched. Bewitched? How bewitched, he repeated. You can see for yourself... The mother's plain, I must say, but the child is like a changeling. She'd be about thirty-five. But he took no notice. His sister talked on. There's your woman for you, she continued. You'd better marry her. But still, he took no notice. Things were as they were. Another day, at tea time, as he sat alone at table, there came a knock at the front door. It startled him like a portent. No one ever knocked at the front door. He rose and began slotting back the bolts, turning the big key. When he had opened the door, the strange woman stood on the threshold. "'Can you give me a pound of butter?' she asked, in a curious, detached way of one speaking a foreign language. He tried to attend to her question. She was looking at him questioningly. But underneath the question, what was there in her very standing motionless which affected him? He stepped aside and she at once entered the house, as if the door had been opened to admit her. That startled him. It was the custom for everybody to wait on the doorstep, Till asked inside. He went into the kitchen and she followed. His tea things were spread on the scrubbed deal table. A big fire was burning. A dog rose from the hearth and went to her. She stood motionless just inside the kitchen. "'Tilly,' he called loudly, "'have we got any butter?' The stranger stood there like a silence in her black cloak. "A," came the shrill cry from the distance. He shouted his question again. "We've got what's on the table," answered Tilly's shrill voice out of the dairy. Bronwyn looked at the table. There was a large pat of butter on a plate, almost a pound. It was round and stamped with acorns and oak leaves. "Can't you come when you're wanted?" he shouted. "'Why? What do you want?' Tilly protested, as she came peeking inquisitively through the other door. She saw the strange woman, staring at her with cross-eyes, but said nothing. "'Haven't we any butter?' asked Bronwyn again, impatiently, as if he could command some by his question. "'I tell you, there's what's on the table,' said Tilly, impatient that she was unable to create any to his demand. "'We haven't a morsel besides.' There was a moment's silence. The stranger spoke, in her curiously distinct, detached manner of one who must thank her speech first. Oh, then thank you very much. I am sorry that I have come to trouble you. She could not understand the entire lack of manners, was slightly puzzled. Any politeness would have made the situation quite impersonal. But here it was a case of wills and confusion. Bronwyn flushed at her polite speech. Still, he did not let her go. Get some it and wrap that up for her, he said to Tilly, looking at the butter on the table. And taking a clean knife, he cut off that side of the butter where it was touched. His speech, the for her, penetrated slowly into the foreign woman and angered Tilly. Vicker has his butter for browns by rights, said the insuppressible servant woman. "'We shall be churnin' to-morrow first thing.' "'Yes,' the long-drawn foreign yes. "'Yes,' said the Polish woman. "'I went to Mrs. Brown's. "'She hasn't any more.' "'Tilly bridled her head, bursting to say that, "'according to the etiquette of people who bought butter, "'it was no sort of manners whatever, "'coming to a place cool as you like "'and knocking at the front door asking for a pound as a stopgap.' while your other people were short. If you go to Brown's, you go to Brown's, and my butter isn't just going to make shift when Brown's has gotten on. Bronwyn understood perfectly this unspoken speech of Tilly's. The Polish lady did not, and as she wanted butter for the vicar, and as Tilly was churning in the morning, she waited. sluther up now, said Bronwyn loudly after the silence had resolved itself out. "'until he disappeared through the inner door. "'I am afraid that I should not come, so,' said the stranger, "'looking at him inquiringly, "'as if referring to him for what it was usual to do. "'He felt confused. "'How's that?' he said, "'trying to be genial and being only protective. "'Do you?' she began deliberately, "'but she was not sure of her ground.' and the conversation came to an end. Her eyes looked at him all the while, because she could not speak the language. They stood facing each other. The dog walked away from her to him. He bent down to it. And how's your little girl? he asked. Yes, thank you. She is very well, was the reply, a phrase of polite speech in a foreign language merely. Sit you down, he said and she sat in a chair, her slim arms coming through the slits of her cloak, resting on her lap. You're not used to these parts, he said, still standing on the thrug, with his back to the fire, coatless, looking with curious directness at the woman. Her self-possession pleased him and inspired him, set him curiously free. It seemed to him almost brutal to feel so master of himself and of the situation. Her eyes rested on him for a moment, questioning. "'as she thought of the meaning of his speech. "'No,' she said, understanding. "'No, it is strange. "'You find it middle and rough?' he said. "'Her eyes waited on him, so that he should say it again. "'Our ways are rough to you,' he repeated. "'Yes, yes, I understand. "'Yes, it is different. It is strange. "'But I was in Yorkshire.' Oh, well, then, he said, it's no worse here than what they are up there. She did not quite understand. His protective manner and his sureness and his intimacy puzzled her. What did he mean? If he was her equal, why did he behave so without formality? No, she said vaguely, her eyes resting on him. She saw him fresh and naive, uncouth, almost entirely beyond relationship with her. Yet he was good-looking, with his fair hair and blue eyes full of energy, and with his healthy body that seemed to take equality with her. She watched him steadily. He was difficult for her to understand, warm, uncouth, and confident as he was, sure on his feet as if he did not know what it was to be unsure. What then was it that gave him this curious stability? She did not know. She wondered. She looked round the room he lived in. It had a close intimacy that fascinated and almost frightened her. The furniture was old and familiar as old people. The whole place seemed so kin to him, as if it partook of his being, that she was uneasy. It is already a long time that you have lived in this house, yes? she asked. I've always lived here, he said. Yes, but your people, your family. We've been here above two hundred years, he said. Her eyes were on him all the time, wide open and trying to grasp him. He felt that he was there for her. "'It is your own place. The house? The farm?' "'Yes,' he said. He looked down at her and met her look. It disturbed her. She did not know him. He was a foreigner. They had nothing to do with each other. Yet his look disturbed her to knowledge of him. He was so strangely confident and direct you live quite alone. Yes, if you call it alone. She did not understand. It seemed unusual to her. What was the meaning of it? And whenever her eyes, after watching him for some time, inevitably met his, she was aware of a heat beating up over her consciousness. She sat motionless and in conflict. Who was this strange man who was at once so near to her? What was happening to her? Something in his young, warm, twinkling eyes seemed to assume a right to her, to speak to her, to extend her his protection. But how? Why did he speak to her? Why were his eyes so certain, so full of light and confident, waiting for no permission or signal? Tilly returned with a large leaf and found the two silent. At once he felt it incumbent on him to speak. Now the servant woman had come back. "'How old is your little girl?' he asked. Four years, she replied. Her father hasn't been dead long, then, he asked. She was one year when he died. Three years? Yes, three years that he is dead, yes. Curiously quiet she was, almost abstracted answering these questions. She looked at him again, with some maidenhood opening in her eyes. He felt he could not move, neither towards her nor away from her. Something about her presence hurt him, he was almost rigid before her. He saw the girl's wondering look rise in her eyes. Tillie handed her the butter, and she rose. Thank you very much, he said. How much is it? We'll make the vicar a present of it, he said. It'll do for me going to church. It'd look better of you if you went to church and took the money for your butter, said Tilly, persistent in her claim to him. You'd have to put in, shouldn't you, he said. How much, please, said the Polish woman to Tilly. Bronwyn stood by and let be. Then, thank you very much, she said. Bring your little girl down some time to look at the foals and horses, he said, if she'd like it. Yes, she would like it, said the stranger. And she went. Bronwyn stood dimmed by her departure. He could not notice Tilly, who was looking at him uneasily, wanting to be reassured. He could not think of anything. He felt that he had made some invisible connection with the strange woman. End of section 3